We are in for a treat for episode 184 of the Sales Development Podcast, powered by Tenbound, hosted by David Delaney. My name is James Bodden, and I am excited to introduce Todd Capone. As the guest for episode 184, Todd is the author of Transparency Sale. David and Todd kick off the episode and they start off talking about the power of customer reviews and how transparency can really change the game in that world. Moving on to the 15 minute mark, they talk about how sales professionals can become more transparent and the long-term benefits of being clear and honest as a sales professional. Such vital information here. And moving on, Todd talks about the major snafus in most sales presentations and polarizing topics like the NASCAR slide that we see in most slide decks. Just a great back and forth between David and Todd on this. And wrapping up episode 184, Todd shares why a sales career will serve you well throughout your entire professional career, no matter what you end up doing. A classic, already a classic episode of the Sales Development Podcast. If you enjoy episode 184 with Todd Capone, head over to tenbound.com, leave us a review, and as always, enjoy episode 184 of the Sales Development Podcast. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I'm your host, David Delaney. I'm very excited to introduce Todd Capone, author of Transparency Sale, and a transparency nerd, among other things. <laughs> I mean, a true renaissance man <laughs> and someone who, who we need to, to dive into and, and introduce. Todd, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm already looking forward to it. <laughs> so transparency sale. I mean, this is a complete manual for sales. I mean, really, like if you're newer to sales or you've been in the game for a long time, this takes you through a complete process. So, you know, how did you come up with this process and, and take us through some of the, the highlights? I have some questions that I want to ask you about, but, you know, what is the transparency sale? Yeah, so it, it starts with a story. So in my last role, I was the chief revenue officer of a tech company here in Chicago called Power Reviews. And you could probably guess from the name Power Reviews, that we were in the business of helping retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on their website. So you're buying a pair of shoes on Crocs or buying a sweater at Vineyard Vines or whatever, and you're looking at the product and you scroll down and the reviews are below it. It was us. We're the engine that was helping with the collect and display and doing that for a, a thousand different companies. Well, Here's what happened. And so any, I didn't any even re- know there was a company doing that. Sorry. Oh, there's yeah, multiple. So it's amazing. Most companies that when you look at the ratings and reviews under their products on their website, there's somebody else that's the engine behind that. They're because it, you need all the technology to vet out the swears and the innuendos. You need the technology to be able to calculate the stars, all that kind of stuff. So that was we were one of the companies doing that, and we partnered with. Northwestern University here in Chicago on a research study that when the results came back, it literally changed my whole life, which is Whoa. a good indication of the nerdery that is Todd Capone. But we do this research study that looks at what do consumers do when a website is acting as a salesperson, right? And that's basically any e-commerce site. And so they do all this research that looks at like, how do they interact and what do they do? Well, here was the thing. So first thing that popped up is no surprise is that we all look at reviews today, right? Again, no surprise. Read reviews before we buy something. 
of substance that we haven't bought before. But the two pieces that threw me off on this journey that ended up in a book and a whole business supporting it is 85% of us read the negative reviews first. So instead of reading the five stars, we go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. And that a product, when its average review score is between four, two, and four, five out of five, that's actually optimal for purchase conversion, meaning a product that's got an average review score of a 4.2 or a 4.3 will actually sell at a higher conversion rate than a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews. And so I'm oh, looking at that going, okay. all right, that's when a website's acting as a salesperson, but why does this happen? And me being the behavioral science nerd that I am, I start digging into it. And I quickly discovered a bunch of stuff that supported that's just how we're wired. Like we're wired as human beings to try to predict our experience. And we know at a subconscious level that perfection isn't a real thing. And so I start to look at this and I think, all right, when a website's acting as a salesperson, leading with flaws, remember the 85%, and imperfection, there's four, two to four, five, sells better than perfection. I wonder if we do this in the human human side because all the data and research is telling me it should, will it work? And so I tried it and I, there's a whole story behind the first time I tried it, but the results were like so crazy magical that the company that I was going in to talk to throughout their RFP process, didn't have any formal presentations done and decided on us in 10 days in what typically would be a six month sales process. And I'm like, all right, there's something here. And so we kept trying it. I enabled part of our team and we became the fastest growing tech company in all of Chicago from 2014 to 2017 with some of this as kind of the underpinning of it. And so that kind of led me on this journey of, I got to get these ideas out there that imperfection sells better than perfection. And that leading with transparency is the fastest way to lasting trust, but speed sales cycles, increases win rates, helps you qualify deals in faster that you should win. And just as importantly, qualify out deals that you're going to lose anyway, just faster so that you can spend more time on the opportunities you should win. So that's Whoa. kind of my, my toy, all the string rats, but that's what happened. Okay. All right. So this is crazy. So I'm thinking of my own behavior. And you, when you bring up a book on Amazon, for example, you go straight to the one stars. And you're yes. like, because you want to, like, what is that? You don't want to see a five star because you know it's just the person's friends and stuff that are leaving. Or it could be somebody who loves it so much that, like, that's cool, but it basically mirrors the marketing of the book, right? Like, because people do love stuff. But what you're trying to do is understand, all right, A, what could go wrong? And B, how likely is that to happen to me? Like, for example, restaurant reviews. My wife and I, like I'm a little older, we're old souls. We, when we go out to dinner, we go early. Like we're the 4.30, 5 o'clock crowd, right? And I remember we were looking at a new restaurant pre-COVID and looked at the reviews and the, all the negative reviews were about the service and the fact that, gosh, we went at seven o'clock on a Friday night and they couldn't keep up and the service was terrible. And you're like, okay, cool. We're going to go at 4.30. So that's not going to apply to us. So like, we, we're all always looking at, all right, what could go wrong and how likely is that to happen to me? And it helps trigger that decision process in our brain. Okay. 
And then on the flip side, like, you know, I, I look at the reviews for this podcast or, you know, 10 bound or the stuff that we're doing. And if something comes in that's below like a four, you know, I get really pissed you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So should I, as the owner of the product, what, what should you do? Because isn't the, isn't the point of reviews to be transparent, you know, so that, that you can use them to improve your business? Yes. And it hurts though. It hurts though, because you put your heart and soul into something, right? Yeah. You mentioned Amazon, like they're doing pretty well, right? Yeah. I think so. I, I've heard of them. But you know, <laughs> back in 1995, they were the ones that that started this, where under their own products on their own website, they're like, hey, if you've tried it, let us know what you think. And we're going to make that accessible so that that information can help future buyers to make the right decisions. Because I don't want to just sell something. I want to sell something so that that customer stays, buys more and advocates on our behalf. So yeah, you know what? If this didn't work for you, let's work on that. Now, a couple of things. So I know we're, we're focused on reviews and this idea that when you get a negative review, one of the things that's a huge boon is when you can respond to that negative review too and with, with empathy and with a dedication and focus on helping and you know making that a better experience for any future customers that come along. Like when you do that, that's really what sparks it. But that this whole study, it, for me, it it sparked this idea that when a website's acting as a salesperson, leading with flaws and presenting yourself as being imperfect sells better. In the human-to-human environment, the exact same thing happens as it turns out all of behavioral science, all the data and all the practical application tell us that transparency sells better than perfection. But to your point, because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything we do by an experience, we now have to do it anyway. Like one of the things that I know we're going to talk about is sales history. This book that I'm holding, I don't know if anybody is able to see it, but it's a 1916 book called The Art and Science of Selling. It's got a whole chapter on honesty. In 1919, there was a writer talking about sales who is quoted as saying, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. So we've always known that honesty and transparency sells better, but now we've entered an era where because of that proliferation, we now have to do it anyway. And so now is the time to embrace it. So yes, with reviews, like reviews, if you've got negative ones, they hurt. You know, If you can reply to them, that's better. Not to tell them they're wrong, but to support it and be empathetic. But to think about those lessons and those ideals and apply them to the human to human or B2B world is where the magic truly happens in our profession. hundred percent. And that, that's, that's where you got to put your ego aside. It's, it's like being self-secure. It's like, okay, you know, thank you for the constructive criticism. Now let's, let's figure out how to improve. Right. And not being like defensive, you know, cause you could sit there and be like, ah, these haters, man, haters, so, okay. So Todd, I'm going to be okay with getting, you know, a couple, if you're listening to this though, give me a five-star because it really does. <laughs> okay. Well, so, I'll tell you, so, I'm going to let it go. go too far. <laughs> like one of the, the reviews on my book, for example, is, yeah. wow, this is fluff and it would never work in an enterprise environment. Yeah, and I'm thinking yeah. to myself, I mean, what do you do with that, man? I mean, don't, yeah, it's just like, like you, you put in your heart and soul for years on this thing, your blood, sweat, and tears. You go on there and some guy's like, this book sucks. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's like, 
it would never work in an enterprise environment tells me you didn't actually read the book because like the beginning of like the whole part that kicked this off was an enterprise environment, right? It applies to everything. Right. Like I actually use this idea of leading with transparency when buying a car, when buying some vinyl flooring for our house here. Like when you think about this idea that leading with flaws and being transparent builds a relationship on a foundation of trust and that every interaction with another human being, you're either building trust or eroding it. You're not keeping it the same that if you just take that from the, the lessons here, you're going to be successful. And so I sometimes I read those reviews and go, I don't know if they really read it, but when there's a hundred other reviews that are like, gosh, this like changed my life in an enterprise capacity. I'm, I'm just hoping that people read more than one review before they make their determination. hundred percent, man. Okay. So you're constantly being reviewed as a, as a human being and as a salesperson, right? So now I'm bought in, man. I mean, I, I want to be transparent and I want to put this in. I mean, look at what you've done with this, you know, using this methodology. So how do I become more transparent? Like, let's go through the steps that you laid out here. Well, yeah, I think first of all, let's take a journey to our favorite retailer for a minute. And that's Ikea. Like everybody loves Ikea, right? Like what oh, a night. Man, the meatballs. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the meatballs are good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But like Ikea, I believe, is a perfect encapsulation of the way that we should be thinking about our own positioning and messaging, right? Like you go to an Ikea, hard to find what you're looking for. When you do, there's nobody there to help you. You've got to take a picture of the little code or write it down because you get to go to the warehouse yourself to pull the 200-pound boxes off a shelf onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, push it out to the cashier and then out into the parking lot where you jam it in the back of your car Tetris style. You drive home with a souvenir injury or two, thinking that you just left all of that fun back at the store. You open the box, there's 150 parts that have no words on the work instructions. You F-bomb your way through that. And when you're done, you get a little endorphin rush and you're like, well, that looks pretty good. I should have bought the end tables with this bedroom set. Let's go back. Like, it's crazy that... They create crazy, but who's the number one furniture retailer in the year now for the 13th straight year? It's Ikea. Ikea embraces this idea that, hey, listen, there are certain things we're going to give up that so that we can be great at our core. So you're going to find it. You're going to pick it. You're going to drag it onto a cart. You're going to jam it in the back of your car. You're going to assemble it. But we give those things up so that we can be great at our core, which is giving you modern Scandinavian design furniture that you didn't pay much for. And so when you think about your own organizations, there's two pieces of advice. Number one, embrace who you are, but embrace even more importantly, who you aren't. Like, what are you giving up to be great at your core? That's number one. And then number two, go do the homework. Go act like a buyer. A buyer has access to you know, if you're in the tech space, like the G2s, the trust radiuses, the Capteras, read your Glassdoor reviews because buyers are actually reading reviews on Glassdoor and Indeed and those types of things to understand. I'm not just buying your products and services. I'm, I'm buying your culture and your people. And how can I possibly get excited about you as a company if your own employees aren't? And start to curate that information to inform the way that you're going to create this messaging. Now, one last piece of advice there, though. I am not telling anybody to go into your next sales engagement and start with, hey, this is why we suck. Like, take it easy. 
that four two to four five is a really important window. And it the word that pops to mind comes from supermodel Tyra Banks of all people, but she coined the term flossum. And flossum is this idea of embracing your flaws, but knowing that you're still awesome, that that's the point here. Help the buyer predict by helping them understand not only what your core is, what you're great at, but what you give up to be great at the core or what could potentially go wrong or what a competitor maybe does a little bit better that might be applicable to them and help them make that determination quickly as to whether or not you're going to be the right partner. Because when you do that, again, you build trust. And if the customer is not on board, you're going to lose faster. But even more importantly, you're going to get them to that goal line a lot a lot faster. And especially in today where your buyers are all remote and building consensus on the buying end is even harder for the buyers than it's ever been, remove friction from the buying journey. Otherwise, your customers are going to find other things to prioritize. Got it. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of the folks in sales development, they want to move into full cycle sales, but they might be a little newer to their career. Is there is there a, a way that they should think about becoming, you know, more transparent? And, you know, what's the long game in doing this? I mean, it sounds like it sounds like it's it's really being honest with your strengths as a company, but then also what you what you don't do. And and just being honest and upfront with that in the beginning of the process. Oh, that's it. That's exactly it. I'll tell you a quick story on that. And that from a sales development perspective, I would also like to spend a minute talking a little bit about executive empathy before we go too far. But the story on the embracing your flaws is, remember that at the beginning, I was telling you like what happened and like all of a sudden what triggered my intention to go write a book. I was the chief revenue officer. I was in New York and all of a sudden as I'm there, I had a meeting canceled. So I had a few hours open in New York. And my VP of sales texts me at almost the same time the meeting canceled saying, hey, Todd, we just got an inbound lead from a big apparel manufacturer. And it was a company that was right in our sweet spot, like perfect. So I called them and I just, I was bored too, but I called my VP of sales and I was like, tell me about it. What's going on? And he explained what their process is going to be, the RFP that they were going to send out. They have us all fly up to New York to do like the full formal presentation. And I was like, New York, I'm in New York right now. I forgot that they're here. I know this is a one in 50 shot, but could you have the rep reach out to their head of e-commerce and tell them I'm in town with a couple hours open if he wants to go grab coffee. So he did and the one in 50 shot hit, the guy said, yes. So I go over to their office, check in. It's in Manhattan, it's hot. I go up, meet the guy in his office. And as soon as I walk into his office, he points me to his computer screen and the HDMI cable coming out of it and says, hey, you could plug in your laptop here for your presentation. And I'm like, presentation? I, I thought we were having coffee. Like, what happened? Oh, I, I look to my right and people are rolling chairs in and it was seven of them. So there's nine of us in this oh, hot gosh. Manhattan office. They're expecting a presentation. I thought we were just having coffee. I mean, literally the lead had come in an hour earlier. So I don't know how this guy expected that there was a presentation coming, but I was fresh on this research. And so he starts in a very New York way, like no small talk, just like, let's get to it. He says, hey, we're looking at you. We're looking at your competitor. How are you better than them? And like everybody in the room's got their arms up, like, all right, here comes the sales pitch. And I decided 
I'm going to try it. Like I got, no, I'm alone here anyway. So if it doesn't work, I'm, I'll make up something as to what happened, but I, I'm kidding there. But I decide to try this and I said, Hey, listen, before we get too deep into this, can I actually share something our competitor does that we don't? Because if that's going to be important in this process, like I would love to vet that out first before we spend a bunch of time, you know, doing RFPs, like you've got a whole team in here that, you know, you're spending a lot of time on this. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, what? And I was like, well, our competitor just released an add-on that not only do we not have, but they just released it. Like we hadn't even contemplated it. And if that's going to be an important consideration, can you like, let's talk about that now. And so we ended up, it was like, we were all at the same table of suddenly, like the trust went through the roof and they're all kind of debating it. And I'm selling on behalf of our competitor because at its core, I want to control that message. I would rather that message come from me than our competitor anyway, but it also has that added benefit of being the four, two to four, five, right? To being the 85% of us that go to the negative first. They, within about 10 minutes, determined that that was not something that they cared much about. And I then talked about our, you know, our modern Scandinavian design furniture. You didn't pay much, like what, what our core is. Within 10 minutes, he kicked everybody else out of the office, opened up a folder that had his budget on it and literally pointed to line five, which had the budget for this project. And I had never in my, like, I got plenty of gray hair. I never had an executive show me their actual budget. And it was the first time I had tried this. And like, then we talked through budget. They threw out the RFP process. They didn't have us fly up and they decided for us 10 days later. And like, that was when like things really kicked off to where I was realizing that, but that's, that's the kind of things that we can all do is to try to stop being all things to all people and instead try to be the greatest at your core and recognize what you give up and lead with it. I love it. And and let me ask you real quick. It seems like, you know, some customers are like that. They come in and they just want a demo, like, just show me, show me what you got, you know? And then it's like, it's boring, you know, because you're just going through a slide presentation or, you know, what, whatever the guy asked for, you know, when you went in there, it's just this, but it's like, it's almost like what they expect, but where the real, you know, nitty gritty comes in when you're actually trying to help solve a problem in that way. So do you think it was in that situation, you were able to kind of break through the mindless, you know, show me a demo so I can make a decision and you like kind of blew it up and said, Hey, I don't have a demo. Let's talk about what your problems are and I can solve them. Is that possible to do with people that are just trained to look for a demo? Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to, it's a great welcoming way to turn a presentation into a conversation. Okay. Right. Like that's, that's its core. We could go off on a whole tangent about this one, but you know, one of the things that I had recognized a long time ago is, and it's because and I know this is going to sound weird, but reality makeover TV shows. Uh, like Queer Eye on Netflix or Restaurant Impossible on the Food Network or Biggest Loser, Extreme Makeover, they follow a choreography that we can actually follow in the way that we sell. And I know that sounds crazy, but you know, first of all, in a reality makeover, like take Restaurant Impossible, for example. It's a show on the Food Network where this guy Robert Irvine comes in to a restaurant that's struggling, that is volunteered to be on the show. They say, hey, we've got a problem. We want to talk to you. He comes in and, and, and yeah, and in 48 hours, he turns around the whole restaurant, but his engagement 
is not to show up to, again, these restaurants, they volunteered just like your customers. Like you're not Zoom bombing people or, you know, busting into conference rooms. Like they have donated their time to listen to you. Like they want to hear a presentation, right? He doesn't go into these restaurants and do a 15 minute presentation that starts with his mission statement and then has his locations and the awards that he's won. I've won James Beard awards. And then like a NASCAR slide of all the logos of the restaurants he's helped. That would be the boringest show on the planet. Instead. So true. What he does is he comes in and go, Hey, why are we here? Like, let's talk about that. And Hey, there's a few things that I've seen here that you haven't talked about as being the issues. Like he runs his fingers across the buffet and dirt falls in. He's like, Hey, the place is kind of dirty, right? And your menu's got 4,000 things on it. And so, you know, he builds credibility by being somebody who's there to have a conversation and to teach that customer maybe something they didn't know about their own business and to give them options and to help them predict, right? And that's a choreography they use in all of those shows that in the end, these people run through, like they want to run through a brick wall for Robert or the Queer Eye guys or the biggest loser, like they're friends forever, and at the end, it's always a success and they're always crying and hugging together. Oh, that was amazing. Right? Like, that's what you so want. It, it's, it's Wow. So, okay. If you can think about, you, you change the order of your slides. Like, that's a great place to start. That instead of leading with you, you lead to you. And instead of making yourself and your company the hero, you make that customer, that prospect, the hero in the story you tell that leads to them and it becomes not only a really compelling argument, but it tells a great story, which is what the reality makeover TV shows do. And you can do that too. It's it's not that hard. I love that, man. You know, one of my favorite shows is The Prophet with, with Marcus Lemonis. I don't know if it's on anymore, but he did stuff like that. He would come in and within half an hour, this business would be on the verge of bankruptcy. You know, it's just a complete disaster. And now it's like humming, you know, after his, his magic touch. Yeah. And he never had a slide deck. He never right. did a demo, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, I mean, and there's a whole chunk of decision science I've been studying on in the traditional presentation, by the way. I don't know how this happened. And like every marketing department is doing it. And it literally is 180 degrees from the way that our brains engage, uh, prioritize, decide, build consensus. Like we actually do things in the traditional presentation that drive consensus buyers into their corners. The, the traditional presentation is actually a polarizing tool in a sales process. And it blows my mind that we do that, but we still do that. And there's still companies all over the place. It starts with, you know, in the year 1620, Sir Francis Bacon theorized on what cognitive bias is, which is essentially, if I've got a preconceived notion or thought about something, I will take in all logic and data to support my argument, even if that logic and data runs opposite of my argument, because I will immediately take that in and go, here's why it's wrong. And it makes my previous opinion stronger. Now, our presentations are just filled with cognitive bias laden logic. Like we just throw logic at them. Like, Hey, here's the awards we won. We we were the best in class in 2019. One person who's on your side might go, yeah, you guys were best in class in 2019. That's fantastic. But the person that's against you is saying, who won it in 2020? Maybe we should be talking to them, right? Like every piece of logic has the opportunity to drive a wedge 
in a consensus audience and make purchasing harder. We need to stop that. And instead of throwing a bunch of logic at people, we need to tell stories. And again, if you follow that choreography I just explained that leads to your solution instead of leading with it, it's a great place to start. Got it. Okay. And and more details in, in the book as well to how to actually do that because, man, if we can just get a few people to read this and start to implement it, I think we could save everybody a lot of stress you know, on both sides of the, of the coin. Well, yeah. And yeah. the fun thing is 98% of the world is still doing it the old way. 98% really of the- out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got an opportunity. So like 98% of the world is still presenting their solutions as perfect. And I hope the customer can't, doesn't find out why we're not, which is impossible now. And then, you know, 98% are still following the traditional logic data bearing. This is why we're great. And did I mention how great we are presentation choreography company? There's so many offerings in just about every space now, and everybody's still trying to compete on their features and their value and their, their pricing and like those types of things. But I believe there's a huge opportunity still to differentiate in the way that you sell and the way that you aid and Sherpa the buyer through their buying journey. And it, it doesn't take much to stand out from the noise when you're treating the buying journey as a Sherpa instead of as somebody who's trying to hammer your customer into a purchase. Sherpa. Wow. Okay. Like a guide. You're guiding them along. It reminds me, there's a great book called Building a Story Brand. I can't remember what the guy's name is. It goes into how the hero's journey, you know, is being, you know, taken place throughout the business world. And we come in and we try to be the hero, you know, hey, we've got yeah. five star reviews and G2 crowd and all this stuff and NASCAR slide. And it's like the guy, you know, the person on the other end is like, hey, I'm trying to be the hero here, not you. Right. You're supposed yeah. to be the guide. Yeah. And the NASCAR slide is such an interesting one because so many of us believe that it's a credibility slide. Like we got to have it. It's, it's credibility. Yeah, well, it, if you think about how it polarizes, you know, imagine you've got a slide that's got all of your big company logos on it and you're using that as a source of pride. If you walk in to a presentation, there's 10 people there. Five of them are with you and five of them are leaning towards either a competitor or doing nothing. The way they'll react to that NASCAR slide is a perfect example. The five that are for you will look at that and say, wow, gosh, those are, those are great companies. If they're good enough for them, they're good enough for us. But the five that are against you will be doing one of a couple of things. They'll either say, wow, those are some big companies. We're going to get lost. We're going to be a little fish in a big pond, huh? Or, wow, there's a lot of a lot of different industries represented on this slide. Do they really know us and our company? Like we're, we're different. Like why are they working pharmaceutical and motorcycles and. Right. We're not Google. Yeah. yeah it, it, like we're not, yeah, we're not that this doesn't reflect us. And so again, the slide that you are so proud of and you think is building credibility is actually working against you. If you've got an audience that may or may not be for you and you just, you got to be careful with all of that stuff. Make it about them. You know, Todd, this is interesting too, because I follow your work um, in the sales history Twitter account. You got to give us the handle on that. because Yeah, it's just at sales historian on both Twitter and Instagram. I post daily oh, quotes from the world of sales history. I've got stacks of books and magazines. The core of my collection is from about 1905 to 1925, but I've got things. I've got a book from the, I think it's the 1880s. 
that basically doesn't paint a really good picture of sales. But all the way up to today, I've got another core that's kind of 1940 to 1970 that are really, it's another interesting era. But that's my hobby is sales history. Well, that's, what's so interesting about that is there's core principles, you know, that run through the sales history. And it's a lot of a lot of the stuff that you've revealed in the transparency sale. You know, you can trace it all the way back. It's just written in sort of a different, you know, obviously, you know, they use different language and stuff like that. But there are some core things where you go, I follow you on Instagram and I, I look and I go, well, you could say that today and it's still the same. You know what I mean? Yeah, I often joke that you can literally pull paragraphs from these books, drop them in the LinkedIn, and people would look at it and go, that's brilliant, and have no idea that it's 110 years old. So that's where they're getting all their ideas. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should. Yeah, exactly. Like, I should just start doing that. But to your point, one of the the recent revelations that I've had through reading all of this is if you go back 105 years, so let's go back to 1916 for a moment. 1916, as a country, we were in the middle of World War I, and there happened to be something called the World Sales Congress that was going on in Detroit. It was 3,000 salespeople for a sales conference, again, 105 years ago. And their keynote speaker is President Woodrow Wilson. So why would the president in the middle of World War I keynote a sales conference? Like, that sounds crazy. But the thing was, back then, Sales was not only respected and trusted as a profession, it was actually admired to the point where President Wilson's theme was this idea that, hey, you know what, if we're going to successfully come out of the war, but also take advantage of the progressive era of the Industrial Revolution, it's salespeople that are our success or failure. Salespeople bringing the right products at the right time to the right buyers and not trying to sell them, but trying to help them. And having that focus is that when those companies become successful, they grow and they hire and the economy thrives. And as a result, salespeople doing right makes all of us better and actually makes the salespeople more successful too. So that was why it was admired as a profession because it was seen as the the key cog to our country being the leaders coming out of the progressive era of the industrial revolution. Now, if you look through time, we kind of lost that, that again, I don't think sales, you know, it, it continues to show up near the bottom of Gallup's annual trusted professions list, along with members of Congress. So that's very disappointing. Yeah, and yes. it's like, and why? I believe it's because we lost our focus on the customer, first of all. And part of it happened naturally in the, you know, the early 20th century if you were going to sell, you had to do it face-to-face. Like you could send something in the mail. There were mail order catalogs back then, but to really sell, it was an authentic, I'm looking you in the eyes type of conversation that over time we were given these incredible gifts like the telephone and email and LinkedIn. And I believe that those tools, while they were great tools for salespeople to scale, that that word scale became a dirty word as it relates to the perception of the profession of sales because like salespeople ruin those things essentially by you know overcalling and you know automation and robocalls and calling people at night while they're trying to eat dinner and you know email spam and like hammering people with like you know phishing emails and LinkedIn the connection requests I get are just horrible like we're ruining that. I think we've got to get back to this world of understanding 
that sales is about making human connections and helping buyers make the right decisions at the right time. Because when they thrive, we all thrive instead of, I got to hit my numbers, right? And that's, that's where I think a lot of us have gone wrong. We've, we've lost our face in the world of sales. Yeah, it's interesting too, because you know the thing that's cool about sales is that if you're just like floating along through college and you don't know what to do and you're like, yeah, you know, it looks cool. You know, I, I could wear a tie and get on and off airplanes and <laughs> have a fancy briefcase and stuff. At least that used to be the, the image, you know, and have a nice haircut and stuff. And I'll get into sales, you know, and make a lot of money. And so that's the cool thing is that it's kind of open to anybody, you know, even if you're, especially now, if you're, you could work hard, get to know the customer, read Todd's book, like it's a, it's an open forum. But on the flip side, when you present that to your parents or, you know, your, your parents are like my son, the doctor, the lawyer, you know, they want to see that you, you know, grinded it out and had a goal and stuff. And then you became this high status position and you come to them and you go, Hey, I'm in sales, you know, they're like, Oh my God, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but it's like, there's two sides of the coin. One is it's really cool because it, it offers opportunities to people that can be super successful. But on the flip side, we do need to change that perception that like you ended up in sales, you know? Yeah. It's funny you say that, but I've been married for 12 years. Yeah. And I remember when I was dating my wife, we had been dating long enough that we did like the family dinner. But before it, you know, my wife called her sister and was like, I'm dating this guy. And she asked like, oh, what does he do? And my wife apparently replied, he's in sales. And her reply was, oh, gross, right? And like, that's, like, that's the perception, right? And that's, that's because we've got a long lineage of you know, doing things. We, we remember the negative, right? Like we remember the people that are ringing our doorbell and trying to hard sell us stuff and cold calling us during dinner and sales, uh, right? like, yeah. And you, yeah, car salespeople and, and the insurance. I mean, like watch the movie Tin Men, which is about like aluminum siding sales. You know, it's yeah. incredible, but it like it gives you the creeps, right? That the way that salespeople are portrayed and you know, part of that is reality. And I think now because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback and all of these things that we've got to embrace our new role, which is to be that guide or that Sherpa or that personal trainer for our customer, help them achieve things that they didn't even know they could achieve, point out things that maybe they don't know or they don't see and help them predict so that they can make the right decision and make the right decision before they've invested a bunch of time in it, which also means before you made a bunch of investment and time in it. If we start to embrace that as a profession and then regain our kind of authentic look you in the eyes type of relationship, I think sales can come back. I already see it in the tech space. I mean, the tech space, people are seemingly really embracing this. I still see some, I bought a car a couple of years ago. And when I was there, at one point, the guy, the salesperson literally wrote a dollar amount on a piece of paper and slid it across the desk at me. And I was like, people still do this? Like, I can't even believe it. Like, it, it, there's still elements of sales that are still so stuck in the 60s and 70s that we've got a ways to go. But I have faith that our profession is going to move up that Gallup list with enough of a focus on things like this. I agree. I just think of, you know, I grew up in a very nice neighborhood and I remember 
one of the neighbors, I asked my mom what he does. And I remember the look on her face and saying, he sells dog food, you know, and, <laughs> and I'll never forget that. But he had this really nice big house in the nice neighborhood, right? And so it's like, how do you, you know, and a lot of CEOs come up through the sales organization. You know, they, they come in, they, they're great salespeople, they really buy in, they go in a d- few different places, and they become the CEO, you know, and if you look back hard enough, they were in sales, right? So it's, it's this dichotomy between, like, there's the old, last quick thing, there's the old money and the new money, you know, and it's like the old money is you become the successful doctor and the lawyer and all that stuff, and it's very respectable. And, you know, I'll say a family member of mine lives in a really fancy neighborhood. I mean, just off the chart, fancy neighborhood. And there was this guy moves in. He's the Ron Papel, who was selling like a slow or a steam cooker or something on infomercials. And he, I mean, had climbed up through the ranks of society to buy into this multi-million dollar neighborhood. And and they kind of like, oh, he's you know, the guy who sells, you know, steam cookers on TV or something like that. Still, you know, they, they wouldn't give him the respect. I really respect that guy. He came up from nothing. And anyway, so that's my my rant, Todd. Sorry. No, it's great. I mean, <laughs> to track. your point, like, you know, yeah. to have sales as your foundation for, for anybody who's listening, the things that you're going to learn in sales will be applicable to everything that you do for the rest of your career. And that's, you know, you think about even like doctors, doctors, you know, they have to learn all the medical stuff, right? But a lot of their training is in what's called clinical empathy, which is being able to truly relate. And like, there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. I think salespeople get those mixed up that sympathy is, uh, I hope things are going well in these trying times. And oh, you know, like that's sympathy. Empathy is being able to truly, you know, oh, get man. in the shoes of the person that you're talking to and relate and understand exactly what they're going through. That That's a, you know, a medical focus in their education, right? That their ability to do a proper discovery and understand exactly what's going on and be able to, you know, look beneath the words and understand what's truly going on in this person's world so that I can make the right diagnosis And if that diagnosis is there's nothing wrong, you don't need anything for them to quickly come to that because they don't make a commission on it. But salespeople, like, again, we're learning those exact same skills, but we're trying to find some way that I can sell them something. Right. And I I think that, you know, those skills of being a doctor, being a lawyer and being able to make a compelling argument, the lawyers aren't going in front of a jury and listing off a, a, a list of data points and logic. They're telling stories and they're trying to tug at your heartstrings because they get it. They know that they're trying to lead the jury to your understanding and your belief versus leading with it, right? And so the skills that you're learning in sales are so broadly applicable to everything that you can do that even if you're just starting in your career and think long-term, maybe I don't want to be in sales, just embrace every minute that you have to be able to learn these skills because they're going to make you better regardless what you do. 100%. 100%. And start with this book. I mean, this is this is your manual. And think about those results, you know, that Todd was saying. I mean, this is really, really a great way to look at it. And it is, it's a great career choice. So Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show. How do we get the book and connect with you with not a canned pitch on LinkedIn, but something real? 
Oh yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. So I'm really hard not to find, which I've been blessed by. So, you know, just look up my name at the core places. You can get the book, obviously Amazon. I do sell it directly on my website for a couple extra bucks and I sign them. So if you care about that, you can do that. But then I publish a blog because I'm constantly in decision and behavioral science and then history at transparencysale.com if you want to follow along there. And yeah, I mean, as far as the reach outs, this is not a phrase that I made up. I stole it from somebody else, but just stop pitch slapping people. Uh, the pitch slap is, you know, <laughs> you, you send a connection request, I hit accept, and then you slap me with a pitch. It, you know, obviously that doesn't work. Be personal, but be valuable. Add value to my day and send me something that could only truly be sent to me. And you'll stand out like a beacon in a dark forest at night. That's for sure. Well, if you take anything... Take it that. Nobody wants to be pitch slapped. I love it. <laughs> Todd, thank you so much. And we appreciate you sharing your wisdom with the sales development community. We'll talk Thanks again soon. Me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.